on this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice. To become literate is a system in itself, and that phonics and phonemic awareness is a one integral part of that system. This pendulum swing about this debate has gone back and forth. And every time that pendulum swings, guess what happens? A whole cohort of society of people end up swinging with it and be forced off of the literacy cliff. I remember when our organization, Unbound Dead, identified that justice is found in the details of teaching and learning and that our work would reflect it. Naming this felt right and so did doing something about it. Everyday choices and systems, both obvious and low key, hold truths about the nature of how we educate our children. These truths are opportunities for us to course correct and expand opportunities for students to receive grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. Author, speaker, and leader Lacey Robinson is a walking, talking testimony of this process. Her experience as a student, a teacher, principal, and org leader weaved together in her book, Justice Seekers, Pursuing Equity in the Details of Teaching and Learning, now available wherever you get your books, and its purpose to help people see the power of our decisions in education and how they lend to the arc of justice or injustice in this country. This is the LP. Welcome, folks and fam of all walks and talks to the LP podcast, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to be more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. In other words, so today's guest is none other than the amazing, illustrious Lacey Robinson. We're going to be talking about her book, Justice Seekers, Pursuing Equity in the Details of Teaching and Learning. Lacey Robinson is the president and CEO of Unbounded, where this podcast is housed. She is also the chair of the board for Core Learning. She is a former teacher, principal, current org leader, speaker, literacy advocate. You might have heard her on Soul to Story and Fuji's fan. Folks, <laughs> Lacey Robinson. How you doing, Lacey? Hey, Brandon. Oh, <laughs> uh, this is this is round two for us, right? Because we're able to have a podcast interview for uh, the complexion of teaching and learning. Now here we are for the LP. That is true. That is true. I for, I forgot we did do that. We did it long time ago, almost yep. a year and a half ago. And look at you! You are your second iteration of a podcast. This is awesome. Yeah, no, it's great, and, and it's crazy that we're going to be talking about your book. So looking forward to the conversation. First question I want to ask, we ask all guests, what was your favorite text as a kid, as an adolescent, and as an adult? Yeah, I mean, man, anything from Nancy Drew to, uh, oh my God, Judy Bloom. I mean, I just, and I loved periodicals. I loved nonfiction, any books I could get my hands on about the animal kingdom or the weather, because I was really obsessed with the weather or plants, or animals. Adolescent, middle school, you were talking about? I fell in love with B.C. Andrews. I could not get enough of flowers in the attic. I was, and you know what? I distinctly remember being in middle school and being like, the characters, like the way the writer, and listen, this is how much of a nerd I was. I also volunteered at the middle school library. And the librarian there let me start a book club, a B.C. Andrews book club. And guess what? We got an opportunity to talk to B.C. Andrews. 
And that blew my mind. That blew my mind. Then something happened in high school. My sister goes away to HBCU, Prairie View A&M, and she comes back probably about her freshman, sophomore year. I think I was a junior by that time. And she comes home and she said to me, she's like, where's Zora Neale Hurston? Where's Toni Morrison? Where, where's uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar? You know, where's Booker T? Like she's just started naming them. She said, you really should be reading them. And, and I had, if I'm really honest with you, never heard of those authors when I was in high school. And I remember in a first year high school teacher that I said, my sister said I should read Toni Morrison. And the next day she brought The Bluest Eye. And I had never weeped over words in a book before the way I weeped in that book. And from that moment on, I fell in love with Toni Morrison, Zorna Hurston, all of those folks, Ralph Ellison, James Baldwin, Dr. Maya Angelou, all of those folks became my best friend. What do you think are the best practice lessons from this story you just shared in terms of your involvement in the library, not being exposed to prominent Black writers until like middle school, high school, and the impact that had on you? Like, what's, the, what's the instructional lesson there for teachers? Well, first of all, the you know story I tell all the time, my mother interrupting my disfluency track and forcing the school to, at that time, hold me back, which is not a formidable practice. And for the first grade teachers to tutor me after school, when I learned how to read, it saved my life. I literally mean that. It saved my life because I don't know what I would have done Growing up, being a part of a single mother household, who my mother and herself, to me, is an extraordinary story. Growing up in Ohio, in a time where, honestly, being Black was a danger I had never not known, if that makes sense. And losing myself in story saved myself, my psyche, my physical being. Like, I knew I was in love the first time because it felt like the way I felt in the middle of Song of Solomon. I knew it emphatically because I felt the same pitter-patter of my heartbeat the way I felt the first time I picked up a book by Alice Walker. And like, so words and stories and authors are like literally my lifeline. When I was little, my mother, her punishment, like if I did anything wrong, if you can imagine me doing anything wrong, <laughs> um, her punishment was to take my books away. And I thought I was going to die. And this is from a kid who didn't know their letters and sounds by the first grade, right? Like this is a kid who struggled. And so like being able to read and not just read, but have like the ferociousness of it, that saved my life. I know that for a fact. In education, people need to understand that this profession isn't always to me, given the kind of light and love and respect that it should, that, and I talk about this in the book, that too many times even I fell underneath this personification that we're missionaries. You know, there uh, there is some type of missionary feeling to this work, but we are professionals. And not only that, we are vital. We are first responders. Literally, society, human beings' lives are placed in our hands, and we have moments where we are supporting a human being as they land on the pathway they're supposed to be on and take off. If, if, if we're mindful, 
about how we get them to extract the intelligence that they are born. I think as a professional, it took me, I probably was maybe 15 years in to my professional track before I realized I'm just as important as an emergency doctor. I hold just as much value as my state senator. I just think that our profession is not given its credence. And, and you can tell that by a pay stuff. <laughs> so actually, let's, let's dive into your book real quick. We'll start with the most basic, like clear cut foundational questions. What was it designed for? Wow. Okay. So speaking of that feeling of love, I say that this book is a love letter to uh, the educators and leaders in our profession. And what I mean by that is, is that like most love letters, we are bearing our truth. We are being as, as honest as we know how. We are speaking our truth through the lens in which we walk the world. We are honoring them as well as saying what it is that we believe that we know that we could get better at. And ultimately it is, it is, I love you. And the audience is to the very first year teacher. The audience is the principal that is sitting at his or her desk right now, wondering if they're going to be their next school year because they're just feeling so depleted. It is the parent who's the president of the PTA cares very deeply not just about their child's experience, but the experience of all the other children in the school and cares very deeply about the community that they serve. So yeah, it, it is my love letter to my community, the edges sphere, like I, as I like to call it. What are three action steps you would like folks to take based upon the info they read in this text and any of those folks in the edges sphere? Like what are some action steps you picture them taking after reading a book like this? Well, I named three action steps at the conclusion of the book. Because the book to me is an amalgamation of my story, stories of students, the history of education in the United States. It gives the history of systemic racism and in some pieces where it may or may not have began, but where it definitely played a role. It talks about some of the experiences we've had when schools have been so gracious and we've been able to go and visit classrooms and schools. It is our rallying cry and unbound ed and what we stand on i would say the truth that we stand on and the vision that we that we stand on but the three charges that we give at the end is charges i've said before in keynotes so the first charge is don't look away so like there are many moments as an educator where things are happening in your building or in your classroom or things that you yourself are like man i just we about to hit this pre-algebra unit and i am scared of math <laughs> and so my charge is like, don't look away. Don't pretend like those things aren't happening because that does not only a disservice to the students you serve, but to you as a professional. I talk about being bold in your speech because there were many moments in my career track that I had to be bold and it didn't always land the way I wanted it to. Like they people chose to hear it or not, but I could at least stand tall within myself to say I said it. You know, I said what I was thinking or feeling on behalf of these students who don't have the same positional power that I have right now. 
And I would say we're bold in our speech at Unbound Ed and at CORE in that we stand on the instructional core. We stand on the research and evidence, strategies, pedagogy, pedagogical content, knowledge, and we stand on the historical view of the layers and legacies in this country that play a role in how school is functioning on a day-to-day basis. So you have to be bold in your speech. And then the last is be bold in your actions. I think that many educators, certainly teachers, feel very powerless, especially today. And I want to remind us that we are some of the most powerful professionals that are out there. We literally are at the helm of the way that our society grows. You know, we are at the helm of our future generations, which is the largest commodity that any country uh, or community can have. And so you have to be bold in your actions in terms of being able to engage the green, the grade level, engaging, affirming, meaningful instruction. And there are ways that you can do that without being so disruptive that you feel like you're going to lose your job. Because I know that being bold in action for some folks, they feel like, oh my God, if I do that, I'll lose my job. But you do yield the power. And so the book dives into what that power could look like. I felt pretty convicted by the don't look away part, just because I know when I was in the classroom, that temptation was there all the time. In some ways I succeeded, in some ways I failed. I think that's a really important and bold call. And I, and I appreciate how the book really tries to make sure that by not looking away, you are being the professional that you are called to be. I want to talk a little bit about Gleam Instruction because naturally it's a part of the, uh, the catchphrase of this podcast, right? Grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction is what we'd like for folks to really consider and implement and reap the benefits from. I have a question. What happens when one of those elements isn't included in the mix? Well, so first let me say that at any moment in your enactment, even in your most authentic pursuit of it, you may not be activating the grade level engaging, affirming, meaningful all the time. So first and foremost, like I'm not under some magical, you know, (laughs) theory or you know, think that, you know, we'll just teach them gleam and everybody will gleam all the time. No, it's about an awareness that you should hold, right? So if you are putting forth a lesson and your lesson is engaging and your lesson may be affirming to students and your lesson, the students will not only derive meaning, but be able to take what they're learning in the lesson and make meaning for it for them and their, com- and their community to be able to uh, put it up against maybe some assumptions or theories that are out there in society about who they are or where they come from, but it's not grade level. That you're aware of the intentionality. Well, why isn't it grade level? Did you remove an aspect of the lesson that was grade level to get to the goal of the lesson, right? Because sometimes in education, there is a dipping down in order to get them to understand the standard that you want them to stand on. And that is with intention, right? Or um, there is a quick review. We're in uh, third grade right now, but I want to quickly re- review with you how far you've come because in second grade you did blah, 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 blah. So it's, an, it's, it's the intention that's behind the action. Where it starts to get to me wonky or what I say the danger zone is that, okay, you got a lesson in its grade level. You could even argue that it's the what I call the first half of engaging, that it's rigorous, right? But it may not be engaging in terms of 
um, allowing the student to see their intrapersonal self. So I always tell a story about there's a book that uh, a kindergarten teacher pointed out to me. It was a story about the development of a city, right? And the development of city started with a house that was moved from the country to the city. The book was engaging. The lesson was grade level. But the second half of engaging around some of the language in the book made the kindergarten students pause and actually say out loud that they questioned where they lived because they started to perceive the way the story was going as where they lived was bad, awful, not good, right? And in that, in that support of that kindergarten teacher in enacting that curriculum, the consideration about the cultural inferencing that was happening hadn't struck that teacher until after the students started pointing out like, oh, well, this book says where I live is not good. So where I want folks to start to consider is that curriculums are cultural artifacts. And if we're honest, stuff is getting better, but a lot of our curriculums are told from a single story. And so we have to start to ask ourselves that while students are being engaged in grade level, uh, while students are, are, are being uh, rigorously put forth on uh, the goals of the lessons or the skills that are being taught, are there messages being put forth in this materials, in these stories that would make the student feel less than or not counting? Is the story, is it coming from a single vision? And listen, I'm not saying every time you put a lesson in front of kids, you got to run out and figure out all the cultural inferencing. I just need you to be aware, right? There to be awareness. So I say the gleam is a continuum. You're constantly running up and down it. It sometimes it crosses over, it gets off the continuum. But to be aware of a grade level engaging, affirming, meaningful, that in itself can shift the trajectory of your instruction. What guidance do you give somebody whose curriculum may not be all the way gleamed out, right? Or it's not equal parts grade level engaging, affirming, and meaningful, and it's missing something consistently. <laughs> what recommendations would you have for somebody in that position? I mean, yeah. I mean, listen, I would say that much of our curriculum and materials haven't been shifted through culturally relevant, responsive lens. I think that what we need to understand as educators is that first and foremost, the classroom teacher, nine times out of 10, is not making the decision about the curriculum and the materials, right? But they are being held responsible for the growth of not just the student's academic identity, but also their interpersonal identity. It goes hand in hand. And I think that the leaders now knowing better, now understanding that cultural relevancy and responsiveness actually makes an academic difference in students that now that there's so much of that information out there, when you're looking at materials that aren't sufficient enough, then you have to start to ask yourself, how do we make it sufficient? Is it through supplemental material? Is it through the examination of the themes being put forth through this curriculum? And how can we either enhance those themes or determine how to get those things to be more engaging and affirming and meaningful for our students. So I think that as an average classroom teacher, you want to constantly have that awareness. You want to be bold, I would say. That's, that's not looking away. Be bold in your speech in asking other colleagues 
either what they have done or what they thought. I think being bold in your action in terms of understanding that if it is from a single story, the kind of impact it'll have on your students and when it's appropriate to show it from a different point of view. So I think all of that to me is to get us to stop and consider because at least for much of my career, I looked away from the materials that I was putting forth to my kids and just thought, well, the, the, the district made the decision. And even though these kids are sitting in front of me, I might eke out a little story about Rosa Parks, but I was, certainly wasn't as in, intentional about it as I now know I should have been. Yeah, the intentionality piece again, like, I guess I'm in a season of like looking back, like the retrospect around like what you were doing when you were a teacher, like, and it does come back to what you just talked about, not looking away and wishing that I was more intentional. What's the takeaway for a teacher that's currently struggling right now to teach grade level or have high expectations? So I want to say that the students pre missing prerequisites is real. We have students from all age groups and grades entering, entering into grades or in grades that have either missing foundational concepts and skills or missing prerequisites that they should have gotten from the previous grade. So that is real, right? When you think about it, though, as an adult, you have missing prerequisites as well, right? Like I hear people say all the time, like, I didn't know how to cook until I got married, right? You had missing prerequisites as a chef because no one took time out to teach you the basics. You put too much salt, your food's going to be salty. You know, you boil, you boil your meat too long, it's going to come out kind of pasty. Like, you had to have those foundational concepts and skills. And yet, many people learn to cook. They may not be great at it, but they have the basic skills down. And so I think that that is real, and we need to understand that Students entering into our grades with those missing prerequisites or foundational concepts and skills, that there is a way to present them the grade level work while scaffolding. That is removing the cognitive load that helps them get to the, 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 the core of the lesson. And what do I mean by that? I'm a third grade teacher. There's a third grade text. Over half my class is reading somewhere at 1.5. That's one and a half, the first, first, first grade, half, half the year, right? About five, five months in. And, and the book is on a third, fourth grade level. That doesn't mean that I'm going to go then and extract that book and go get a book on a first grade level or a first to second grade level. That means that I'm going to look at the goal of the lesson that's in the book. And I'm going to figure out how to lift the cognitive load. What does that mean? If the students are just struggling with this fluency, then it might be a shared reading. We might be listening to the audio version. We might be doing paired reading, but I'm still going to get to the goal of the lesson. We're still going to have a conversation about the theme that the author is resting on. We're still going to have the conversation around the character building that the author is doing, where the plot is. How do we know that we're getting to the climax of the book? You know, uh, what does it take uh, for uh, the author to engage us um, around um uh, the true storyline, right? Using multiple characters. Like, I'm still going to get to those pieces, but I'm going to figure out where to lift the cognitive load to get to the goal of the lesson. And I'm going to work yeah. with my team or with my school um, or with other colleagues to also figure out, all right, 
Now we're talking about tier two, tier three intervention. Where does that come in at? What's the most appropriate time? And does the intervention match the philosophical view of the way that we teach reading in the classroom? Because if it's two different views, all you're going to do is confuse, add more confusion to the, to the learning that the students should be gaining. So I'm thinking about all of those things. And I think what's interesting about this conversation is, this is why I say the profession has to be looked upon as differently. Because when you start to talk like this to folks, and even to some educators, the first thing they say is, well, that's just too complicated. Well, not really. If you went to the doctor and you had the flu and the doctor checked your foot, you're going to ask the doctor why they're looking at your foot and not your throat. And if the doctor says, well, I only studied the foot, I didn't get a chance to study the rest of the uh, rest of the body, you will slowly get off that table, take your little gown off, and as you're getting dressed, the doctor says, yeah, it was just too complicated to study the entire body. Guess what? I guarantee you, you would not finish that doctor visit. And as professionals, we have to be in continuous environments that are developing us and our understanding on how the brain works, right? On how students can get scaffolds and not modifications, on the content, on the pedagogy. So it's not impossible. We just have to think about how we organize our learning as professionals in a different way. I want to talk to you a bit about the science of reading because it wouldn't have been smart to not ask a question about this because you've been a, a premier voice about this, this paradigm shift in education. For those that don't know, and Lacey, like add or, or subtract from whatever I'm saying, the science of reading basically refers to the collective research that explains what the most effective practices for cultivating literacy skills are. Long story short, we ain't been doing that <laughs> consistently um, in a lot of meaningfully uh, meaningful ways. So you talk a bit about this in the book as well. You've talked a bit about it outside of it in the podcast story and the documentary film, The Truth About Reading, and you've been featured on podcasts talking about this as well. Can you explain like what's missing about this dialogue right now in education regarding uh, the science of reading? And how does the book speak to some of these missing things? Yeah, I think it's a very powerful moment that we're in, and it kind of goes back to some of the themes that we talk about in the book. So we talk a lot about, and you've heard us, you've, you've actually been a, a person that has helped us get this message out. It's important that we look at the legacies and the lenses and the layers in which our country, our society, and certainly our educational institutions have been built through. And when you think about the legacy of reading instruction, it goes all the way back to who was deemed as the father of education, Horace Mann. You know, Horace Mann was not a, a believer in the teaching of the code. You know, and at that time, you know, there was a debate around whether or not students should just be saturated in environments of words and they would gain those words or whether or not they should be taught the code. And I think that it's interesting because for many folks now, it is sort of a new paradigm to them, but it is it is a legacy that we have been wrestling with in this country since the onset of public schools, since the onset, honestly, of education in this country. For me, I pause and think about the way this country was built, there was uh, a multitude of folks from different regions from around the globe, certainly with different languages and accents, but that the British, were, which were some of the, 
you know, some people call them the founding fathers. They were uh, some of the uh, original uh, folks who were standing up the systems here and English was the given language. And so there were many folks, um, including the enslaved Africans, including the native indigenous folks that were originally from this land, including folks helming from the um, Asia diaspora, the African, the Latinx that were coming here that were learning English, right? And I don't know anybody, research has shown us that you learned English first by listening, speaking, and then by reading. The code was taught to you, right? There are 40% of us as human beings that no matter how it was taught, you're gonna gain an understanding of it. But that means there are 60% of us that need direct explicit instruction of the code, which doesn't mean that the 40% who gain it sort of no matter what, the instruction is shouldn't be exposed to the code. It just means that we need to have more adherence to what the research and evidence has taught us, right? And so when I think about the debate, when I think about the conversation nowadays, the first thing people go to with the science of reading is phonics. But that's not the only thing that the science of reading tells us. It, it First of all, it teaches us that to become literate is a system in itself. And that phonics and phonemic awareness is a one integral part of that system. But vocabulary and comprehension and fluency are all parts of those systems. And neither part is more pertinent than the other. Each part needs its own attention. And how about this? Each part should not have its own separate attention. They should be shown how they work inclusively together. I'm naming this because all the way back from Horace Mann, when you look through time to the 20s and the 30s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, while I was going through school, certainly in the 90s and now in the 2000s, this pendulum swing about this debate has gone back and forth. And every time that pendulum swings, guess what happens? A whole cohort of society of people end up swinging with it and be forced off of the literacy cliff and not gaining the literacy skills in order to have sufficient literacy, honestly, to have the kind of freedom that we talk about in these United States. So when I think about the science of reading, my urgency right now is for people to understand it's not just about phonics, it's not just about phonemic awareness, but it's the totality of what that research and evidence has taught us of what is needed in order to become literate and to get us to stop fighting back I'm, I'm starting to talk about this now in my keynotes, but to fight forward, to take the best of what we know. Yes, there are aspects of Readers and Writers Workshop that work really well. To take the best of what we know. Yes, there are aspects, or I would say the multitude of the science of reading that we know that is pertinent. And to decide how we create structured literacy hours in our schools so that all students get a fighting and running chance to become literate. You're getting into a lot of details around how folks learn to read, and it gets really intricate. And it matches very well with the model of unbounded in general, and is definitely the declaration that's made in the book, right? That justice is found in the details of teaching and learning. Can you share how that became the foundational statement? Yeah, I, that evolved just through our, our work at the uh, Standards Institute. 
us delivering a national institute across these United States to educators. I say there's many roads to social justice, but the roads that Unbound Ed uh, sits on um, are at the intersection of pedagogical content knowledge, high quality curriculum standards, and the equity that it takes to ensure all students are getting grade level, engaging, affirming, meaningful instruction. And so the justice in the details is us examining the details of the pedagogy and the content knowledge that is needed in order for us to engage students in the instructional core that will put them on the road to college and career readiness, right? And so when I think about education as a whole, there are many parts and parcels, but our focus is around the instructional core. And so that, that justice in the details is our rallying cry that while there are folks out there who are giving the rallying cry around not just having the single view when we look at materials, right? The single story view. Um, there are folks out there that have the rallying cry around the disparaging discipline rates around brown and black kids, right? Our road is through the instructional core. And so that's why uh, that line, justice is in the details of teaching and learning, literally was born out of the work that we have been doing. What's a final quote from the book that you like to close us out with? My dream is that through all of our work, both individual and collective, we are creating pathways toward the complete dismantling and eradication of racism for future generations. It is a huge multi-generational undertaking, but it's the justice we all deserve. We are the army of the willing. And when we unite, no one can stop us. This spin of the LP with Lacey Robinson left me with a few things to reflect on. It's making me think about how boldness is a main ingredient for the mindset required to produce grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction. Boldness doesn't have to mean recklessness so we can be both bold and strategic in this pursuit. Also, we don't have to be dishonest about our students' missing skills. We just have to use that honesty to explore ways to scaffold high-quality instruction and empathize by reflecting on the shortcomings we have overcome in our own lives. Lacey's comments reminded me that the science of reading needs to be seen as a package deal if we are to change the literacy rates in this country. We can't afford to misrepresent what it takes to teach students how to read anymore. Lastly, we have to remember that grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction, or GLEAM, can't just be a catchphrase. Instead, it must remain a tool for us to catch the details in our teaching and learning in a way that promotes a just education. With folks like Lacey leading the charge, I look forward to this work and journey if you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unboundedorg forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at unboundedu. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP. Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, 
engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.